Hi, my friends. We really need your support to keep bringing these wonderful voices to you. If you find joy and solace in the podcast that we create, please consider clicking the button on the right side of the site. You know, that little button that says donate. Thank you for your kindness. I'm going to take a little walk Through them fields I'm going to carry me gently for my heart to heal I'm going to find me a demon In a dark, dark wood Come with me I wish you could Hi my friends who listen to Future Primitive Today uh, my heart is really dancing to be with Stephen Jenkinson MTS MSW He is an activist, a teacher, an author, and farmer. He has a master's degree in theology from Harvard University and a master's degree in social work from the University of Toronto. Formerly, a hospital director and medical school assistant professor, Jenkinson is now a sought-after workshop leader, a speaker, and a consultant to palliative care and hospice organizations. He is the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School in Canada and the author of Die Wise and the subject of the documentary film Grief Walker. I hold in my hand his latest book, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. I, um, I just want to say I, um, I was at uh, the Nights of Grief and Mystery performance here in Santa Fe about New Mexico about a month and a half ago and I was so touched by that performance uh, especially that uh, that my health is not great and I'm 74 years old and uh, so just be with me both you Stephen and those who listen if I, I if I if I have some trouble holding back tears and uh, sweet, deep grief. So, Stephen, strange times, isn't it? <laughs> oh, strange times begins to describe it, yes. <laughs> so, tell us, tell us what you're feeling and thinking at this time of coronavirus 19. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd, I'd say is I think it would serve us all very well if we exercised 
real discretion over what we say. And the reason, I mean, it's no surprise or no news to you. I know that I'm someone who pays attention to language and how it's used and how it's abused and misused and overused and so on. And of course, as I've, in the, in the times when good judgment abandons me entirely and I, I listen to the news reports or whatever it is in these last weeks where I'm homebound like everybody else, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is how extraordinarily eager most of the, uh, of the people who weigh in are to participate in not only in the opinion fest, but in the fear mongering. So, so the first thing is let's not call the time that we're in the era, the age or the time of a coronavirus or any virus. Okay. Let's, okay. let's not elevate a virus until it becomes an era, right? That, that's the first thing I'd suggest. Thank you. It, it is after, oh, you're welcome. It is after all, a, a bizarre and disturbing, naturally occurring thing, this virus. Of course it is. There's nothing unnatural about it at all. It's absolutely in keeping, you know, with our biology and our chemistry and our physics. So it's no, it's no invasion from the outside. That's one. And, and, and the other thing is, it's, it's nothing to set our clock by, if, if you understand my meaning. It's, it's proper that we engage it as a crisis. As long as we remember what the word crisis etymologically means. It has nothing to do with calamity or catastrophe. The word crisis means something, or etymologically it means something like, well, you've been on a quite a tear and your momentum has, has got the better of your judgment. Hmm. And there, there were various warning signs along the highway and all of them said the same thing, be prepared to stop. And for whatever reason, each one of them was more or less ignored and now it's be prepared to be stopped, which is a slight difference in meaning, uh, an increasing sense of urgency. Uh, that's the first part. The second part that it means it comes from the verb to sieve, uh, S-I-E-V-E, to to um, to take the sand and let it run through your fingers to see what else is there. That's that's what the word actually means. Crisis. It means. The opportunity to be slowed down long enough to let let the sand run through your fingers such that you are able to make an informed choice about how to proceed and whether to proceed and the value of proceeding at all. That, that's how I understand the time that we're in. Um, those of us who choose to be in that time, of course, many people are choosing otherwise and and they will be the people who will fall into step with the government, all the Western governments very soon. Of course, the Chinese government is already at this business of declaring that the worst is behind and that it's time to shop and to spend again. And it's, it strikes me that that the, uh, the likelihood of that is very dismaying, first of all. The idea that we could come to this degree of standstill only to resume regularly scheduled programming in a few short weeks from now. It's absolutely tragic if it comes to that. I have no reason to believe that it won't come to that yet again. But uh, we could, you know, I'll, I'll end this response by saying, mm -hmm. 
there was a thing that was born at the end during the course of the Second World War and was finally was finally christened, if you will, at the end of the Second War, something that they came to call the military industrial complex. And this was a kind of unholy alliance, obviously, of the military on the one side and big business through manufacturing on the other side. And that marriage has only g- gained in strength and uh, and in presence in the in the whatever it is, 70 years since those days. And alas, I'm afraid that what happens on the home front is that when people obey the directive from central command to shop until further notice, this amounts to the domestic equivalent of the military industrial complex. The idea being that we'll buy our way out of our misfortunes, out of our sadnesses, out of our deep mistrust of, of the circumstance. And, isn't it true that we stand the possibility of learning how skin deep our understanding of civility and our really the entire apparatus that we've come to believe in actually is? And, and this is what we're being given an opportunity to do, is simply to be arrested in our momentum mm-hmm. long enough to have a deep doubt about how enduring and how trustworthy our regime is, the kind of socio-political regime. Now, grief is kind of soap for the soul. We, we, can, we have the possibility of washing ourselves clean with grief and uh, and the amount of grief is going to increase with the amount of deaths that are happening and will happen. Perhaps you could speak to us about how, how to be with grief in such a way that it is like washing our hands with soap. Mm-hmm. Well, the first... First thing I'd, I'd wonder aloud with you about the formulation that you made, the idea being that if there's more death, there's automatically more grief. Uh, in fact, um, when I was working in the death trade, there was nothing inevitable about those two things coinciding. You could have a lot of death and you could have anything but grief ensue from that. Mm-hmm. You could, for example, have tremendous amounts of anger, resentment, hostility, if we're talking about the kind of virus level uh, death that that we're seeing happening right now, mostly in Europe for for the moment, mm-hmm. you know, we see a lot of that, a lot of impotence, a lot of sense of outrage that the government of the various countries acted uh, without the proper amount of haste, and so on and so on. And, but none of these things are grief. You see, grief, as I've tried to write about it and talk about it over the years, to my mind comes to this. Grief is a willingness, a willingness, and then secondarily, a skill. And the skillfulness of grief is the ability to be seized by life and to not equate that with being victimized by life. Um, When I was working in the death trade, I can tell you that as death came closer, it was more actively resisted, typically, right? In actual fact, what was needed all the time 
was the willingness of people to learn the presence of death, to learn from its presence, and to learn the proper etiquette that, that should govern our behavior around death. It rarely happened that way. So I came to, to suggest that grief, excuse me, that death was a, a god, a divinity. And as such, we had to learn its ways and its language and its, um, you know, its repertoire and begin to be able to speak to it and with it in its own understanding of things. And, you know, that could sound like a horror movie if you're not interested in doing it, uh, or it could sound like an act of fantasy uh, or uh, sort of not personification. I forget what they call it now. But anyway, attributing human attributes to something that's not human. But uh, I said divine. I didn't say human. So I, I don't think this is any different. I think the fact that di dying happening on a different kind of scale with a different kind of cause right now in the world mm -hmm. doesn't change whether it's a divinity or not. Because the dying, the inevitability of our dying was always there with this virus or without it. And the fact that some of us are now dying of this virus unexpectedly really doesn't change the dynamics at all, the, the obligation to learn the dying. So that's the first part. And the second part I'd, I'd suggest to you is if grief is a skill, then it's not the skill of coping, which is not really a skill at all. I've, I've suggested in other times and places that that coping is like treading water, pretending that you're swimming. And you convince yourself that you're swimming just because your head's above the water. But but the coping is, is not in any way at all grieving. Uh, because uh, grieving doesn't promise you that you'll survive. And coping, that's the only promise it makes, is that you'll somehow survive. But the idea that you should survive this is a bit. This is a bit of a peculiar idea, really. You'll, you'll have to admit there's nothing. There's no evidence you can point to to justify the idea that you should be okay and that you should be able to make it through to the other side, and that your life should remain more or less undisturbed, etc. I mean, <laughs> none of those things are true. Uh, there's nothing you can point to to make the case. You could say, "Wouldn't it be great?" And I would agree with you. It probably would would be very reassuring to to imagine all of that but the truth of the matter is that that this is just reminding us how very little are, we are in charge of the proceedings and grace you know the etiquette of grace requires i think that we cultivate an ever more faithful ability to respond gracefully in a circumstance that we don't control Yeah, yeah. So when uh, when was it when one is frightened, like I am, about the emergency of death? Yeah. Uh, what is comforting about that? Um, probably very little, and and here's why. There's nothing in, well, I'll start a different way. Yeah. Dying, dying has no precedent, really, in one's life. Dying's not like something else. 
And, and even though people will make sentences to make comparisons, uh, the comparison <laughs> doesn't serve anybody very well. So, so dying is unprecedented in our life and entirely predictable at the same time, right? So if that's the case, you can't really practice for dying. There's, there's, no, there's no rehearsing. The closest you can get is to practice at the bedside of fellow humans who are dying. Okay. And, and you get something like the, uh, the, the tone of the thing. You get something of the enormity of it, right? That's the first part. And the second part would be this notion that we should be able to be comforted is something that we could wonder about. And here's why. I'll give you a little example. It happens many times. A woman was in touch with me. She said, I've just read Die Wise and it's a fabulous book and you're fabulous and all of that. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. I, I just have a little problem. My father is dying and I'm the sole caregiver for him. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we haven't had a great relationship over the years, but, um, but here we are. And the circumstance is as follows. I've read your book and I, you know, I believe in it wholeheartedly. And that's the kind of thing I want to do with him. He, on the other hand, doesn't want to talk about it at all. So my question to you is, how can I honor my father's wishes to not talk about his dying at all while he's dying and at the same time <clears throat> act in accordance with the things you advocate in die wise so that he can die wise and well? And unfortunately, I had to answer her in the following way. There is no possibility of that happening. Why not? Because the only way that this woman can make sure that her father feels <clears throat> respected or comforted by her is the degree to which she's willing to cooperate with his refusal to live as if he's dying. She has to, she has to conspire with him, you see. And anything, if she drops out of that in any way, she will not be viewed to be comforting. It's possible to say out loud that there's certain circumstances in the human realm that do not permit comfort. Uh -huh. because, because our criteria for comfort is to be absolved of some things that are happening. So unfortunately, we have to choose sometimes between being comforted and being sane or lucid. And at least where I'm sitting right now, it seems to me that the greater achievement is lucidity not comfort. Okay. Okay. Stephen, talk to, talk to us about um, nights of grief and mystery and um, your taking this back on the road and your experience with it and so on. Uh, well, um, it's not something I ever imagined that I would be doing, uh, not at any stage of life, certainly not the stage I'm at now. I mean, I just turned uh, 65, so uh, it's not a time when you get a rock and roll band together and head out on the road if you've never done it before. Um, if you're an oldies act, a nostalgia act, maybe you do, but uh, we've never done it. That's number one, so we're not reviving anything. Number two, Look at what we called it. We don't actually have a name for the band. 
When we crossed the border into the United States in the fall to do the tour, that was the first question they asked us, what's the name of your band? And I had to say, well, we don't have one. Oh, really? What kind of music do you play? <laughs> well, it's not really a genre of music. And, you know, and off it went and it was very difficult to explain because we gave a name to the event, not to the band. In other words, we weren't directing everybody's attention to some kind of pseudo identity of these people on the stage. What we were doing instead by calling it Nights of Grief and Mystery is being honest in our advertising. Uh, that much we could be reasonably sure of, that as long as the uh, electricity worked and people could see, the chances were very good that it would be a night of grief and mystery for sure. And, uh, you know, four or five years later, I guess that's how long I've been doing it now, um, I don't think we've ever failed to deliver on that promise to be, you could say, almost like a circus master to a night of grief and mystery. And it's, um, as you saw, it's a combination of music and sort of a storytelling format. The best way I could describe it is to say it's a very old art form. Uh, and it's so old that people have forgotten the art form. And as a result, they're looking for contemporary comparisons to make when there aren't any. There really aren't. Because what we're doing is a, is a ceremonial thing or a ritual thing. It's not a performance thing. So uh, the, the beginning of the evening is, is an invocation that is directed squarely at the dead ancestors of the people sitting there and, um, and various other things besides. I don't even begin the evening by speaking to the audience. I begin the evening by speaking about the audience to, well, to the other world, let's just say for that for now. And um, it, what I'm trying to do there is take apart the old understanding that there's such a thing as an audience that sits there with its arms folded and listens and approves or doesn't approve. And I'm, I'm trying to do away with the idea that there's such a thing as a script that determines what's going to happen because we don't really know what's going to happen. We don't really know how the evening's going to go. We do know that the people who think of themselves in, as an audience are actually much closer to allies in the in the undertaking and we're trying to do something you know together and uh it's it's a thrill i have to tell you um as far as what's happening right now well we had a we had a tour planned right in more than 70 cities across four continents that was supposed to begin about a month from right now and it was going to bring us to various places in and uh, North America to start with and then over to Europe and, and to Eastern Europe even. And then uh, and then back for the summer here at the farm. And then starting in the fall, we we're going to tour Canada and the U.S. heavily and then to Australia and New Zealand. As things stand right now, well, we've like everybody else, we've had to postpone the first part of the tour up to and including, I think it's May the 8th, we had to postpone and see if we can reschedule them for the fall. But our plan is to still go out there. We, uh, Gregory and I worked, uh, he came down to visit me in Mexico in February, and we worked very heavily on a new record. And uh, we've got about half of it finished, I think, probably. And uh, so there'll be a new record that's going to come out from 
partly from live recordings and partly from studio stuff. Uh, it'll probably come out in early June, I think now, mm-hmm. or late May, somewhere in there. And uh, as far as we're concerned, we intend to get out on the road. Obviously, there's a few things that are going to be um, determined whether or not we can and where we can go and so but But we're determined to go because wow. a time like this, well, something called a night of grief and mystery seems to be exactly what the doctor ordered. Yes. Yes. To me uh, and, uh, and to the people close to me sitting in the row of the theater, uh, it seemed to be like uh, creating a, a milkshake of feelings within, within me, within us, that, that then became the milk of tenderness, a great, heartbreaking, joyous tenderness for the gift of life and me and even and even a tiny bit since it's unknowable the gift of death so i i thank you very much for it uh, i thought maybe maybe you would like to tell one of the short stories or maybe maybe use the opening for our listeners at this time invoke invoke the deities the ancestors for our for our listeners it's a very kind invitation but i wouldn't do that because um If, if you're doing it, you're doing it for real. You're not doing it for the sake of a, you know, a podcast or a conversation. Right. And, and uh, I, I don't think it'd be proper. But, but in, in the spirit of what you've asked, I, I could describe a couple of things that 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 take place. Um, all these stories I say are true, and they really happen too, which is uh, an odd observation to make unless you consider the daily news and then you realize, oh, this is a very proper distinction to make. So I'm able to tell them night after night because I'm remembering, not because I'm inventing. And, um, and one of the stories we eventually, inside the band, we called it the roar and the storm at dawn, which I don't know if we did it. I don't think we were doing it anymore by the time we got to Santa Fe. No, which I, I don't think you did it. No, I have to say that Santa Fe remains in all our memories one of the great shows. It was the audience was so keen from the moment we stepped out there. Oh, it and, was beautiful. Oh, it was amazing, and and of course a full house was a beautiful thing too. And and the local organizers really did a spectacular job of of um, getting people to come out. And then it was up to us, and with a lot of help from from the people in the house and, and the great beyond, it was was just a magic show. And, you know, I've done it oh, hundreds of times in various forms, but certain shows stand out and the Santa Fe one does. So we, we did a, sh- uh, a song, a kind of a song story called The Roar and the Storm at Dawn. And it was, and the preface of it goes something like, you know, there are, there are times to life 
and it's proper to recognize that, that you've gone from one to the other. Uh, there's a thing called the first half of your life. Uh, you rarely know that you're in it. Um, it's not a mathematical formula being in the first half of your life. The only real way that you discover that you're there is when you discover that you're not there anymore because you've segued into the second half hmm. of your life. And as they say, life only has three acts. The first one, the second one, and the third one, which is very short indeed. And everybody knows how the third act ends. So the other two are a little bit up for grabs. But each one of them has a kind of fingerprint, you could say. And the, the, first, the first half of life basically has a spirit project that you could say is attached to it. And it's, it's to awaken to the understanding that you, were, that you were born to something, for something in a very particular time. And that's a, that's a tremendous challenge these days when people feel that virtually everything about their lives is random and uh, nonsensical and meaningless. But the, the notion that you're actually born to a particular time for particular reasons is a mandatory realization in the first half of your life. Uh, and the second part of that is you obviously, having caught wind of the idea or born to something, you have to find out what it is. You have to work towards finding what it is. And then if you're lucky, really lucky, somewhere along the way, you'll get paid to do what you were born to do. That's an astounding sequence of events if, if all of them take place in the first half of your life. How do you know you're in the second half of your life? Well, generally, it's because you're not young anymore. That's one. But the other way, the way you find out is that no matter what's happened with you finding out those initial tasks of the first half of your life, the second half of your life has a different task. And the task is something in the order of you have to find those people with whom to live out the reasons for your birth. In other words, it's not a personal quest business anymore. The second half of your life is to, is to craft a kind of shared understanding around you, wherein by virtue of your life with other people, your reason for being alive finally not only appears, but becomes useful and consequential in the lives of others. So, so the story is how I found out that I was in the second half of my life and it begins in Australia where we had a gig there and, and uh, a storm blew up overnight and the uh, we were right on the seashore and the hotel that I was staying in uh, was right there and uh, I woke up in the middle of the night um, to what I thought was something monstrous and it wasn't in my mind it wasn't a dream because it was right there virtually in the room and when I sort of came to my senses, I, I opened the, the drapes and realized that it was a rescue helicopter that was going up and down the beach just outside my window at about the same height as my, as my uh, hotel room was. It was absolutely terrifying, a horrific way to wake up. And at the same time, it was, it was something very mythic about it because here they are out in a storm, hovering over the surf, looking for signs of life. And when I glimpsed that, I realized that's exactly what I've been doing. This is, this, is the, this is the portrayal of the second half of my life right in front of me. And, and without you know, doing the story again here now, 
you could just say that the realization that came to me as I stood there looking out the window in the middle of the night was that I had an ongoing obligation to hover in the storm uh, because something's happened. Something's happened in the last 40 or 50 years and it's washing everything to the shore. Some kind of wreckage has already ensued. This is not news to anyone. Um, any, anyone with a conscience is well aware, well before this virus came on, that we're in a time where things have already happened. And anyway, it's, it was a kind of meditation and visitation of that understanding. And um, although I wouldn't say I ever got a standing ovation for presenting the story, you could you could feel in the stillness of the room the willingness of people in the second half of their life to begin to realize this is not a time anymore for retiring or for taking it easy or for sitting back and counting your shekels. This is a time for, for doing everything we can to make sure that the kids who are coming around don't go to their bed at night feeling that nobody understands that the sky is falling but them. Speak to us about your relationship. You live on a farm, and so I would love it if you would speak to us about your relationship with the earth, with the land around you. Mm. Well, um, okay, first thing to say is it's, it's never a phrase that I would use, the earth. And the reason for that is because... I don't think it's a single thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only experience we can have of it is particular and local and specific, right? That's, that's the only place it means anything. I mean, otherwise you just have that picture of earth from space, you know, and then, sure. then quote, you see the whole thing, but, but otherwise you have earths in the plural, right? And I know you know, that you're in a beautiful part of the world where you're sitting right now. And uh, I'm very fond of that area. And I've, I've often said, man, I'd love to live in Mexico, New Mexico, rather. It's just that it's in the wrong country for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, right. and where I am, we're, we still have three, three feet of snow behind the house at the moment. <laughs> and it's a much different earth, right? But, but with that in mind, I guess that's the first part of my answer to the question is that I'm, 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 I'm drawn in by the particulars of a piece of ground. And yes, I'm, I'm, I preside over a farm. You know, I'm here so, so infrequently now that it's not proper that I should call myself a farmer any longer. I'm rather, I'm rather somebody who subsidizes the farming activity of other people. That's what I'm doing basically by being on the road. But we have an expression around here. We don't say that we're farming. We say that we're watching the farm channel. And what we mean by that, excuse me, is in about an hour from now, I'm going to go out and feed the sheep and a few other of the daily chores. And this comprises maybe five or 10% of the farm work. The principal farm work is paying attention and being quiet and observing without making everything into a problem to solve. This is how you really find out what's going on. But uh, And the farm will tell you what's going on. But you have to slow down and you have to lean on the fence and you have to look. 
So, so that's, I guess, my quote relationship with with this place is mm-hmm. is someone who, and as in a, almost a monastic kind of practice, I simply uh, stop several times a day and look, or sit, or stand, you know. And occasionally, I interrupt that by doing work, but the lion's share of the work is making sure that I don't come to this with a program already in my mind about how things should go. So you can say that uh, in this way of farming, we're really taking dictation from the great beyond. That's the first thing. And the second thing, it's in, this is an easy one. I mean, it's easy to say, a little bit heartbreaking to consider, but it's true though. So when I took over this farm 16 or 17 years ago, it was in very bad condition because the prior, prior uh, farmers had uh, put a lot of chemicals in the ground and so on, and, and it was not, not a healthy place. And so I had to grow dirt. And in so doing, I had to come to real understanding of earth, not so much the chemical understanding, although that was helpful, but rather from whence it comes, you know. And, and uh, you realize immediately that earth is a consequence of death. That's how it happens. If everything was perpetually alive, you wouldn't have earth because it needs it needs the breaking down of life in order to appear, right? And, and then you realize, well, of course, it's not life that's life-giving. It's, it's death that's life-giving because every living thing has its roots in what has failed to live forever period. That's not really a matter of opinion. That's very observable. So so our job is to cultivate the various deaths that precede our own long enough that we can draw some sustenance from those deaths and long enough that we can begin to see our death in the in the symphony, in the in the arrangement, in the architecture, and not exempt ourselves from it too much. On a good day, we can do that. On the rest of the days, we're as confused as anybody else. Yeah, I wrote down these phrases, uh, a love affair in reverse, right. giving death to the other. So maybe maybe it's, it's, it's possible for me to think about dying in a, in a generous way. Perhaps it's an in- inevitable generosity to die. Yeah, and, and generativity too. Generativity. Maybe that's mm. what generosity is, is generativity. I suspect you're completely right. I, I'll give you a little example many times Uh, It was the child who was dying. Maybe the child is in their teens or 20s or 30s. But as as the way it was happening when I was there, it's the kids that were dying and not the parents. So it was disturbing the the usual sequence of things where the children bury their parents and it was happening the other way around. And when this was happening, almost uniformly, the parents' position was to assume a stance of real grievance, of, of genuine uh, hatred, 
of life and and uh, hatred of God, you know, the, all the things that you would imagine. And um, or the other thing they would do is conspire to pretend that it wasn't really as bad as it was and that nobody was really dying and that they had to keep up their hope and try a new round of chemo or all of that stuff. And unfortunately, it was my responsibility many times to challenge the parents and to ask them whether they thought that this was a genuine act of love and parenting on their behalf to keep the reality of their children's death from them. See, it's not an easy thing to say out loud, but it has to be said. And the same thing happened when the parents were dying. They would do their utmost to keep their dying away from their kids. So, you know, what does this do to their kids? Well, it tells them, first of all, that they don't really trust them to be able to handle the news. And, and secondly, it tells them that they have no obligation to, have a, to learn how to have a dying parent. But of course, if you have parents in this world, and if you don't die first, you have to learn how to have dying parents. Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of having parents at all. And, and so that's a long way of saying it, that things that look like acts of love, oftentimes with some examination, you begin to see it's not really what they are. They're acts of sabotage pretending to be love, you see? So, so what you observed a minute ago is that the real generosity is the generosity of being willing to stop. Of course, being very sad about it and at some level not agreeing to it, but at the end of the day, understanding it, understanding how natural and how life-affirming it is to stop being alive. And there's something very generous in the willingness of dying people to die that way. If I could put it this way, there's something very generous in the willingness of dying people to die out loud. Wow. Die out loud. Yeah. 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 Now, maybe in closing, I'd like to ask you how you seem to have found that. How does one find the truth in oneself or a truth in oneself that one is willing to speak out to others? Mm. Wow. Well, I guess, I guess the first thing I'd say is I don't think the truth, quote unquote, is within me mm -hmm. or anyone else. In that sense, I don't own it. I'm not a proprietor of it. You know, it's not my truth. Um, yeah. there's, there's such a thing as true things, though. You could say that. And I think it's something like, like, like being in love, you know. If you, if you remember when you were a teenager, yeah. if your teenage years were anything like mine, they were a torment, an awful time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. An awful, it's a wonder that your heart survives any of it at all, really. True. Okay. And so in that time, let's say you became very enamored of a particular other person, right? And you became hyper aware of them physically, of course, and puberty was, was um, 
disturbing your judgment and so on. And somewhere in there, um, if you were lucky, uh, you got close enough to begin to learn some of the mysteries of it. And they became more mysterious the more you learned about them, that's for sure. But, but maybe you, if you live long enough that you can look back on those days, then it begins to hit you that the real architecture of the arrangement of a romance goes something like this. I'll speak, I'll speak as a man now, that I, was, I, I chased her so, for so long that she finally caught me. Huh. You see, it's yeah. right at the end, it reverses completely. And I think there's something similar about life and about an understanding of life, what you, what you refer to as the truth. There's something about true things that if you chase them long enough, they will catch you. And you can't really take any credit for that beyond some kind of crazy persistence. That's all. And, and so I suppose that's what I have. That uh, with everything else that's gone along and that's gone wrong and gone crazy, um, I was persistent enough that the reasons for me lasting this long have begun to appear. Mm-hmm. And, and I have no reason or even justification to be shy about them or to be unnecessarily, let's say, uh, how should I put it? Unnecessarily keeping them to myself. Huh. And I, I don't ask anybody else to listen. Well, maybe that's not entirely true. I suppose <laughs> I do. But, but, you know, I invite people to listen and to consider. That's my principal verb that I use. I say, you know, cons- and could it be? formulations like that I, I'm not I'm not saying I got it all figured out I don't even know what it all is never mind figuring it all out and I don't know what we should do you know I don't have all the answers I have no obligation to have them but but I have some good questions though I have a, a I have a night full of questions called nights of grief and mystery and and you know there's something about being willing willing to ask these questions out loud that seems more fulfilling to human beings than telling them what the answers are. And I've been lucky enough to live long enough to be able to start doing it. And um, so far, so good. And as long as the venues stay open later on this year in Europe and North America, well, we're going to do it again. Good. We're going to do it at least one more time. And I'll, I'll leave you with this um, little inside information. Yes. If you look on, on the website today, Okay the Orphan Wisdom website, you'll see the, a tour thing on the top and you hit tour and you will see uh, sort of the graphics, the kind of poster for the tour for this year and description of it and so on. When you look at it, you will think for sure that I I made those images and I made those words in response to this virus and everything that's gone on. In actual fact, we were in Mexico, we were incommunicado, we had, we had no internet ju- stuff, and we made all those things without any notion at all of what was going on uh, in China and then subsequently Iran, and, and you know now we know where we're at. But I didn't know. And so we made a tour poster. We called it the Rough Gods Tour. Yeah. Well, I would have called it the Rough Gods <laughs> of all things. And if you look at the tour poster, I mean, you have a look at it yourself and you'll see there's a there's a map, an old map of the world from the 1600s. 
and in the middle of it, in the middle third, is a uh, is actually um, it's a mezcal cup that a friend of my Zapotec Indian friend of mine made for me, with a with a skull at the bottom of the cup, so that when you're drinking the mezcal and you look down, you remember everything you need to remember. We took a picture of that and superimposed it into the map of the world to be an illustration, an animation of what we meant by the Rough Gods Tour. And lo and behold, of course, the events that have happened since suggest that, well, we may have been onto something without realizing it. And the, uh, the worst outcome would be that we had those glimpses when we're on our own out there in the desert and we don't get a ch chance to act on them. But if we do, I'm fairly sure. I think uh, I think Santa Fe is in the uh, in the schedule for October. Good. I'm I'm quite sure that it is, and it'll be a new show. Three quarters of it will be stuff you haven't nobody seen or heard before, and we've we've almost finished a new record, and that'll be out as I mentioned earlier. So we're not sitting here like as if everything's over. I secretly hope between you and I that a number of things are over, but I hope just as much that we get a chance to testify to all of this, these crazy days we find ourselves in, uh, if we're if we're allowed to to continue and to tour in your country and mine, and over in Europe and so on. So we'll see what happens, but that's our plan. Thank you, thank you so much for all of it. The conversation today, the uh, the willingness and the generosity to tour and and to bring your stories and music to a theatre near some who are listening, and uh, and anyway, thank you for speaking to my own heart today, Stephen Jenkinson. Well, you're, you're very welcome, and thank you for putting it out there to give me something real to speak to. Good. Carry me gently for my heart to heal I'm gonna find me a demon In a dark, dark wood can't come with me I wish you could I 